God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you for a rich time of singing praises, lifting our voices to you, more importantly, our hearts and our voices to you. Father, we could never fathom the cost required for our redemption, for our ransom. But your word does say that we were not ransomed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so we know that it required the death of your son. And that ought to leave us stunned in awe of your majesty and holiness and of your great love for us. And I pray this morning that as we open up your word that you would give us a sense of your majesty and of your holiness and of your love that you would speak to us with clarity. Father, my prayer this morning is that uh, you would fulfill your promise where you say, I, I will watch over my word to perform it. I will send forth my word and it will not return to me empty. Father, my prayer is what Paul says, that the word of God may run and be honored or glorified. I pray that this morning, that we would have ears to hear, that we would be attentive, and that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So last week I began a new series uh, looking at four key ingredients that are necessary for growth, both personal growth as well as growth as a church. And so we looked at the text in uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, which is, comes on the heels of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost, and uh, the Holy Spirit's doing dynamic work, right? He has been poured out upon those gathered in the upper room. Peter, full, full of the Spirit, stands up and preaches before this gathered crowd his first sermon, and 3,000 are saved. That is amazing. Um, they were gathered together after this. They ate together. They worshiped together. They praised God together. There was joy and reverence and gladness of heart. They had a lively witness toward outsiders, and the lost were being found. The lost were being saved. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And it's no surprise that all of these things were happening. The church, this early church, was devoted to four things. They were devoted to the scriptures. It says in verse 42, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. 
It was not some kind of passive devotion, like, yeah, we're devoted to the Word of God generally, but it was, there was a serious devotion to the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to fellowship, a deep koinonia, deep togetherness, a one-anothering in life. They were, devout, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which I suggest is just a, just generally speaking, a remembering and celebrating of the cross. Right? That's what it is, a memorial supper where we remember what Christ has accomplished for us and celebrate it. And they were devoted to prayer. Now, of course, it's true that these early believers were in the midst of a revival, no doubt. And so some of these things were organically happening, right? I mean, how, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, we will be devoted to these things if you're affected by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it does say that they devoted themselves. In other words, it wasn't God who did it for them. There was volition on their part. They devoted themselves to these things. And we cannot divorce the blessings of the Spirit's work among us from these activities that we're to be devoted to, we're to be committed to. The Scriptures, fellowship, prayer, celebrating and remembering the cross through the Lord's Supper. Not only that, but I also want to stress that these things, right, devotion to the Scriptures and prayer and so forth, these things can be a means by which the Holy Spirit does an extraordinary work of grace and power among us. I'm, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's, it's a book that chronicles a period in Wales from like the early 1700s through the mid-1800s where God did, poured out his Spirit in extraordinary ways. You would call it bona fide revival. And uh, there was this there was this older gentleman named Griffith Jones who was not part, he was not one of the main characters in the revival, the first revival that came, but he was called the morning star of the revival because he saw a problem in Wales. There was a huge problem of illiteracy among kids and adults. And so what he did was he set up schools all throughout Wales, hundreds of them, and appointed teachers and tutors to teach people to read not just so they could read history books or science books and, or comic books or anything like that, but so they could read the scriptures. So they could read the Bible and lay the groundwork for what was to come later. We ought to pray that, that as we commit ourselves and devote ourselves with fresh zeal to these things, that God would bless it extraordinarily. We ought to see these activities as means of grace. A man named David Mathis, who's on staff, or used to be, I think he probably still is, at Desiring God, wrote a book entitled Habits of Grace. And it's just another way of talking about spiritual disciplines. You guys have heard of the idea of spiritual disciplines, right? Like things we ought to be disciplined to do. Reading the Bible, praying, fellowship, and so forth. But he said that these habits of grace are habits that we develop that put us in the path of God's grace. Or maybe in other word pictures, they put us under the waterfall of God's grace. So what I want to do over the next several times that I teach is I want to drill down a bit more in each of these ingredients to press upon us the need for devotion more thoroughly to these things, to prayer, to scripture, 
to the Lord's Supper, to the cross, celebrating and remembering the cross, to deep fellowship with one another. And then apply and give some direction to how we might do this as a body so that it might put us in the way or in the path of God's rich blessing. So today I want to look more deeply at why we should be devoted to Scripture. Now remember last week, if you, uh, if you were here last week, the word devoted literally means to be continually devoted, continually diligent in attending ourselves to the Scriptures. Why should we be devoted in that way to the Bible? Now if I were to ask almost everyone here, are you devoted, are you committed to the Bible? Probably you, a lot of people would say yes. And so I want to just kind of press this a bit. I don't mean devoted in some kind of passive way. Like I'm devoted to that book that's on my shelf called the Bible. But I mean devoted like you're in it. You're growing in your knowledge of it and in your deepened understanding of God through the scriptures. That's what we're calling for. That's what I think the scriptures call for. So why should we be continually devoted in that way? 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21 gives us three glorious reasons that we need to see right here. We need to see it. We need to have this pressed upon us and go forth rejoicing and doing what God calls us to do. So there's three reasons from 2 Peter 1 that I want to address this morning. The first is the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. The second is the trustworthiness of Scripture. And the third is the sufficiency of Scripture. And so it's for these three reasons that every Christian ought to be wholeheartedly devoted to the Scriptures, to the Bible, young and old. Whether you are a you know, brilliant person with a super, super, super high IQ or somebody who doesn't fit that bill. We all ought to be wholeheartedly devoted to the Bible for these reasons. So the first is the authority of Scripture. And here's, what I, here's the point from this idea, the authority of Scripture. It's this, what the Scripture says, God says. Scripture is authoritative. Brothers and sisters, your feelings are not. Okay? Brothers and sisters, your intuitions are not. Your spiritual senses are not. Your, what you think God may have spoken or is speaking to your heart is not ultimately authoritative. God's word is. Now, that doesn't mean your feelings are unimportant or your intuitions or spiritual senses or what God may be speaking to your heart. It's not that those things don't matter. It's just that they're not authoritative. And they can't be. Otherwise, we'll be led astray eventually. Scripture is authoritative because it's the very word of God. Verses 20 and 21 says this, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now there's, this is a pregnant couple of verses, but the point is clear. The initiative 
end, the product of Scripture is all of God. Notice, no Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So it's not the product of human investigation or the writer's own thinking and imagination. It's a divine gift. And this needs to be said, all of it's a divine gift. There's a group of people called uh, Red Letter Christians. Ever heard of that before? Um, they, they say, well, the red letters, you know, it's Jesus' words. And so if Jesus seems to disagree with Moses or Jesus seems to disagree with Paul, or, then we go with the red letters. Of course, you know, Bible publishers put the red letters in there, right? And if I can just put it this way, if we're going to do that, the whole Bible's red letters. It's all the words of Christ. It's all his word. All of it is authoritative. All of it is God's word. Notice also that the scriptures are not produced by the will of man. Scripture is not the product of human initiative. It's not that men or men and women willed to write something down. It's not human initiative, human ingenuity, or driven by the will of man at all. It was God's desire, God's will, God driving it, God initiated. It's clear, men spoke from God. Do you see that? Men spoke from God, verse 21, not from themselves. As they were carried along or born of or brought along by the Holy Spirit. So men spoke from God as the Spirit carried them along. Uh, B.B. Warfield, who was a 20th, 19th and 20th century American uh, theologian, I think he taught at Princeton perhaps, I think so. Um, he made, I think, a powerful insight on this word that's translated carried along. Here's what he said. What is carried is taken up by the carrier, namely the Holy Spirit. Okay? And conveyed by the carrier's power, not its own. To the carrier's goal, not its own. The men who spoke from God were taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by his power to the goal of his choosing. I think there's no more passage, no more important passage in the Bible that affirms both the human instrumentality in the, the writing of Scripture, right? Paul actually wrote things down. Peter wrote things down. Moses wrote things down. And also the divine origin and product of Scripture. Then this passage. It's so, so key for us. It's because men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit that the Scriptures are divine. So when you hold your Bible in your hands, you are, you're holding, now we're probably used to saying this, but truly, really and truly, God's word and God's words, the words and phrases God spoke and speaks. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a key text, I think, as well. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations say inspired by God, um, 
breathed out or God breathed, I think is a, is a better way to say it. It's breathed out by God. Scripture is God exhaling. Think about that. People are dying to hear God speak in our day. People long to hear God speak. If there's a God, what, I want to hear him speak. It's he, God exhales and Scripture comes forth. In other words, as I said before, what Scripture says, God says. That's the essence of what it means that the Scriptures are authoritative. What the Bible says, God says. Listen to how Paul actually assumes this in Romans 9. I found this fascinating. Paul assumes this in Romans 9. He says this, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now what Paul's doing is he's quoting Exodus 9, verse 6, where God is speaking to Moses and saying, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh this. In Romans 9, Paul says, this scripture says to Pharaoh, but he could have said, God says to Pharaoh. It's the same thing. What the scripture speaks, God speaks. Which means one obvious application for us is that there can be, ultimately, no problem passages for Christians. That doesn't mean there are, I mean, there are, there are problem passages in the sense that we have a hard time understanding maybe what it's saying. But once we understand with clarity what the Scripture's saying, there's no problem passages. Because it's all, it comes from our Father. It comes from our God who is good and wise and righteous and all that he does and all that he says. And so we must humbly receive the word implanted which is able to save our souls. God's word is authoritative. What the Bible says, God says. And so let's pray that we would be responsive to God's word like the people in Thessalonica. Like people in Thessalonica. Yeah, you know, First and Second Thessalonians written to this people, this group of people in the city of Thessalonica and Paul commends them for how they responded to the word. Here's what he said. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Which is at work in you believers? For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered like they did. So he said, you receive the word of God, not as a word from men. Yeah, I'm a man. Paul's like, I'm a, I'm a man speaking, but I've come from God and I'm speaking God's words. You received it as the word of God, which is what it truly is. And then he says this, and it's obvious that you did because you became imitators you did what it said. So may we respond to God's word because it is authoritative. What the Bible says, God says. But the Bible is also completely trustworthy. The trustworthiness of Scripture, it's completely true and trustworthy and sure and steady and steadfast. 
verses 16 to 19, says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So I take the idea of the trustworthiness of Scripture from the phrase more fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That phrase could be translated more sure, more firm, more stable, more steadfast, more steady, more trustworthy. The question is that we need to ask is more fully confirmed than what? More sure than what? Well, the answer is stunning. <laughs> it's amazing. Peter in this passage, is referring back to the time when he, along with James and John, were up on the mountain with Christ. The other disciples were left down at the bottom. They were up on the mountain with Christ, and before their eyes, he was transfigured. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. He became, his clothes became brilliantly white, and he was, they got a glimpse, truly, I think, of the uncreated glory of the eternal Son of God. Right there. Not only that, remember Peter said something kind of stupid and, and a cloud hovered over them and God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Well, Peter says, kind of referring back to that, the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They heard that voice. They saw the brilliance of the eternal son of God before their eyes. And then Peter says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have a better testimony. We have a better testimony than even the eyewitness testimony of those with Jesus on the mountain. And the better testimony is the prophetic word by which I think Peter simply means Scripture. The divine trustworthiness of Scripture is what Peter wants to draw to the fore here. And just to reiterate what Peter's saying, he's announcing that though he was on the mountain with Jesus and can recount what he saw and heard, the better testimony, the more trustworthy testimony, is that which is written down in Scripture. Who would have loved to be on the mountain with Jesus that day? you'd remember it forever. It would be like the apex, right? The most epic experience ever. So it begs the question, I think, what makes the written scriptures more trustworthy, a more sure testimony for us than something like Peter's experience. What makes it a better testimony of God's message to us? 
we probably could go further than this, but there are at least a few reasons I thought of. The first is so that God's word could be preserved for future generations. So we're not dependent upon oral tradition, right? The memory of an individual or a group of people that then pass it down and hopefully the next generation remembers it correctly and then they pass it down and hopefully the next generation remembers it. Who's ever played the game of telephone? Ever played that game? Matt was talking about it last night. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it doesn't usually work that good. But because the scriptures have been written down, we have an accurate preservation of what God said. Now, I know some people say, no, 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 there's a lot of discrepancies in the Bible, and and the Bible contradicts it. Well, that's probably another discussion. The Bible contradicts, it doesn't contradict itself. But some say there's discrepancies. There's variance, right? Some of the manuscripts older, some newer, and... Sometimes there's differences between them. In fact, you might even see in your Bible sometimes a little number, not the verse number. Do you ever see those little numbers in your Bible and then you go down to the bottom where it's referenced and it says some manuscripts say something like that? Who's ever seen that before? Okay. Well, it's true that there are some variants between the manuscripts, but it's interesting. Of all the ancient texts, all the ancient books that have ever been written, there are by far the New Testament has way more manuscripts than any other ancient text. And there are far fewer variants between those many, 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 many manuscripts than any other ancient text. So one, for the preservation of God's word, we can trust because it's been written down for us and that is good. Second, why, why is the written scriptures more trustworthy? Second, for the repeated recalling and inspection of what God has said. Isn't it amazing? We have, I mean, I bet you everyone here has two, three, four, twenty Bibles in your home. Fifty. If you're David, you have a thousand maybe, I don't know. Um, you got a bunch of Bibles. One suffices, right, to be able to go back and see what God has said and not rely upon your own memory. And actually, this, it's interesting. This is Peter's most immediate concern in this passage. Uh, here's what he said in the verse right before what we're covering today, verse 15. Um, Peter said this, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. How's he going to do that? Having it written down. For recall, for inspection, we can gather together. We can open up God's word. We can inspect it. We can, we can talk about it. We can discuss it. We can debate it, friendly debate, right? To try to understand what he says. This is good. This is good. And third, the third reason why written scripture is more trustworthy is for the widespread accessibility of the scriptures. To get it into the hands of every person. Um, It is quite a gift. It's amazing. If If you read missionary biographies where they're going to an unreached tribe, like people who have never heard the gospel before, invariably, almost 
all the time. The first thing they do is learn the language, translate the Bible into that language. The Reformation, the explosion of, along with the Gutenberg printing press, and the desire by Martin Luther and William Tyndale to translate the Bible into common languages like German and English, there was an explosion of Bibles accessible to people who had never had their own. William Tyndale famously said, if I, if God, I can't remember exactly the way he puts it, but if God allows me to complete my project, the, the plowboy the common boy in the field working a plow in the 1500s will know more scripture than the Pope. God's word is completely trustworthy. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. Now theologians use the phrase, the inerrancy of scripture, that it's without error, without deceit, without misleading information, but I think we can actually go beyond that as well. The scriptures are certainly without error, but it's actually more than that. The scriptures are infallible, meaning it's not possible for them to contain error. Because they're God's words, and he's perfect. God cannot lie. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And so I think this is why Peter says, and I want to probably come back to this a bit later, but Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to the word of God, to the scriptures. You will do well to pay attention. We ought to pay close attention to what God says in his word. God's word is trustworthy, and therefore we can devote ourselves, and we ought to devote ourselves completely to it. But God's word is also sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. Verse 19 says this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God's word is sufficient. It is. It's all we need. For what? And I, listen, I'm not saying God doesn't guide us and lead us in unique ways. He does. But the scriptures, all we truly need. Um, for what, though? What is it, what's, what's drawn out in this passage? The scriptures are sufficient to light our way through this dark world. Look at what it says. The word of God is like a lamp shining in a dark place. What's that mean? We live in a dirty and murky and dark and deceived and deceiving world. And so how do we make it through this world victoriously? How do we navigate our way through these tumultuous waters or this dark path we're on? It's through the word. It's with God's word. God's word is sufficient to light our path. It guides us. It gives us insight into God's mind. It gives us wisdom to navigate difficulties. It reveals to us the things that please the Lord. 
what pleases him. It exposes the schemes of the devil. It illuminates the path of love. It shines a spotlight on the brilliance of the hope of the gospel again and again and again. And we need all of this. Without God's word, and I mean a devotion to it, we walk in darkness. We walk in the murkiness and we're always threatened with deception. I mean, I suppose we always are no matter what, but we certainly are more prone to fall into it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I I love the way he puts things. He just, you know, he was the prince of preachers. Here's what he said. We are walkers through the city of this world, and we are often called to go out into its darkness. Let us never venture there without the light-giving word, lest we slip with our feet. Each man should use the word of God personally, practically, and habitually, that we may see his way and see what lies in it. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it will be for God's people until the end of the age. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. You notice that phrase in verse 19. You'll do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until. So there is a a period of time in which we won't need it in the same manner, right? But until the day dawns. I think he's talking about the day of the Lord, when the day of Christ dawns, when he comes, when the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus is the morning star, Numbers 24. When this happens, right? So for the rest of our lives, for the rest of this age, the word of God is light. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Which is why you and I will do well to pay attention, to bring it near to turn your mind, my mind, to it. You and I will do well to devote ourselves fully and continually to the Word of God. And it does have massive, massive practical implications for your life at home, for your marriage, for your self-discipline in all areas of life, for how husbands and wives relate with each other, how we raise our children, how children ought to respond to their parents, how we ought to be good neighbors to those around us. It has massive implications for how you work and how you spend your time and your money and a whole host of other things. It is incredibly practical. Somebody once said that, um, uh, well, I'm not gonna, never mind. That would take me down a bunny trail. I'm not going to go there. Okay. All right. Thank you, Lord. Um, God's word is authoritative. The very word of God. What the scripture says, God says. God's word is trustworthy. A more sure testimony from God. God's word is sufficient to light your path through this dark world so that you live victoriously until your dying breath. Now, if this is true, which I think it is, How should you and I respond 
I've mentioned this before, but I just want to press this a bit more. It's clear. You and I will do well to pay attention, to heed what it says, to bring it close to mind and heart. So I want to just give you a few practical things that I want you to do this week um, in order to help you on the ground in the trenches. How do I grow in this? First, long for the word. Now that might sound really unhelpful. (laughs) How do you long for something you don't long for? Right? If somebody told me to long for cauliflower, I would say, yuck. I don't long for it. How do you long for something you don't long for? Well, let me explain. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation. So, are you a child of God? Have you been born of God? Are you a babe of God, if you will? Well, just like healthy babies long for their mom's milk. We've had six of them. Every one of them, they were, praise God, they were healthy. They longed for milk. They wanted milk, mom's milk. They wanted it often. Just like a healthy baby longs for mom's milk, healthy spiritual children long for the nourishment of God's word. If a newborn has no desire for mother's milk, it's not a healthy sign. It's a sign that something needs to be done to remedy that. And so, if you don't have a longing for the word of God. And listen, I don't mean you wake up in the morning every morning and you are craving to get, you, you know, to get into the Bible. I don't necessarily mean that. But if there's not this sense in you that you need it and you're drawn to it for the nourishment you get from it, if you don't have that, seek God this week until you do. Please. Seek God until you do. So, the first thing I want you to do is long for the pure milk of the word. And if you do have a longing, say, Lord, increase it. Increase it. We want to, I want to be, I think I told you about John Bunyan last week. He's, he was just, he was a living Bible. John, or Charles Spurgeon said if you pricked him anywhere, he would bleed the Bible, we want to be like that. Number two, demolish obstacles. I think we need to recognize that we are in a battle always. And one of the chief aims of Satan is to keep you and I from the word. It is. I learned something this last week. Massachusetts, if I'm remembering correctly, was, I think, the first colony to get a charter from England here in America. It's not the first state when we become, became a nation, but it was the first colony. And uh, the, uh, the leaders of the colony instituted a law. It was called the Old Deluder Satan Law. 
This is our country. This is our heritage here. And the law sought to combat the deluder Satan who wants to keep people from knowing and understanding the scriptures. And so families, once there was like 50 households, a family had to hire a teacher. They had to pay for it. Okay, 50 households, they would pay for a teacher who taught their kids to read and write. Once there were 100 households, all the families had to pool their money together and start a grammar school to teach kids how to read and write, certainly to learn other subjects as well, but especially the queen subject or the, 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 the most important subject, which is theology, the study of God through the scriptures. They understood these, these 500 years ago, not 500, 400 years ago, they understood that the devil wants to keep you and I from the Bible. And so what obstacles are there that's keeping you from it? You need to see that as demonic. Truly. What obstacles are there? You don't read well? Okay. See that as something you need to grow in. You're a slow reader? Big deal. Slow readers might get more out of the Bible than fast readers, okay? Can't concentrate that good? That's something all of us, it's harder for all of us than it was 30 years ago. See that as something you need to work on. Too busy? Make time. Too lazy? Get up earlier. Stay up later. It's massively important. Whatever the obstacle, see it as a scheme of that old deluder Satan and demolish it. Don't settle for it for another single day. Number three, have a plan. Have a plan. It's not less spiritual to have a plan. Or to have discipline, disciplined times. In fact, I would suggest that it's doubtful you will make any headway without discipline and some kind of plan. J.C. Ryle said there are no spiritual gains without pains. And sometimes discipline can be painful. We have to adjust our schedule We need to say, I'm going to do this instead of this. I'm going to stop doing this so I have more time for this. That can be painful to do. J.C. Ryle, I think he's right. No spiritual gains without pains. Now, Now, we understand how that works in almost every other area of life. And almost nobody has a problem with it. Whether it's athletics, no pain, no gain. Sports, or I'm sorry, uh, academics, no pain, no gain. Advancing in work, no pain, no gain. Instrument, learning an instrument, no pain, no gain. Any skill you learn, we get it. Without some kind of effort and pain, we don't make headway. And yet when it comes to spiritual growth, I fear that we either expect it to just come without any work Or we say work sounds like legalism and that's bad. We don't have anything to do with that. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said elsewhere. He said sanctification, again, is a thing which 
which depends, so sanctification just means growing in Christ-likeness, which is what we're talking about, right? Scriptures help us to that end, both personally and as a body. Sanctification, again, is a thing which depends greatly on a diligent use of scriptural means. When I say means, I have in view Bible reading, private prayer, regular attendance on public worship, regular hearing of God's word, and regular reception of the Lord's Supper. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. He goes on to say, I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make much progress. So there needs to be a plan. I realize everyone has different schedules and different body makeup. Some people like to get up early. Some like to stay up late. Some work certain hours that preclude you from doing certain things. But there needs to be a plan. Something you can do consistent. Something that's manageable too. Right? If you say, I'm going to read two, if you, if you're like, you scarcely ever pick up your Bible and you say, I'm going to start reading two hours a day. <laughs> You'll be disappointed um, 15 minutes into that first day, probably like, oh, wow. And yet, give yourself something manageable to bite off and God will increase your appetite and increase your appetite and increase your appetite. Finally, so let me just recap. Here's things we need to do. We need to um, long for the word, demolish obstacles, have a plan, and finally, we need to work to do that. We need to see that we're doing this together. They devoted themselves. We need to see that we're doing this together. There's nothing more encouraging than getting together with someone who is just, you can tell they've been immersed in God's truth. It's so encouraging. They share it with you. And we come, men, men study on Saturday morning. It's so encouraging when we come together and, and you just know that these men have been in God's word. This week, I want to, later this week, I'm, I'm going to send an email out to the church. I want to introduce something that I think we could do together to help us grow in scripture knowledge and memorization and, and ultimately Christ-likeness, which is the goal. So we're to be devoted to scripture because it's authoritative. It's what, God, what the scripture says God says. It's trustworthy. We can take it to the bank. It is totally trustworthy. It is a trustworthy testimony to us from God and it is sufficient. Brothers and sisters, we live in a dark world, in a dark time. And I'll just speak from personal experience. When I, and I do this, when I try to make heads or tails of what is going on in this world without looking through the lens of Scripture, confusion, disorientation, what on earth is going on? We need, to, we need to have God's word light our path. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, dear Father, that these things that were spoken, in, insofar as they were true, you would take and plant them deep in us and shape and fashion us in your likeness.
for your glory 